Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to a Mad Sounds podcast special, all about the Arctic Monkeys' third album, Humbug. Myself and Will are joined by an expert panel of fans to help guide us through, scrutinise and fanboy on one of our all-time favourite albums. This is very much a fans podcast, however, even if you're not the biggest Arctic Monkeys fan in the world, I do hope you'll stick around and see if we can win you over. If not, go and put Humbug on right now. It's a belter. Enjoy the pod. came out in August 2009, less than a week before they headlined Reading Festival. It reached number one in the UK album chart, although it was only the band's fourth highest selling record of the six. To the casual fan, it's often forgotten. There aren't really any floor fillers like its predecessors are packed with, and it's lazily described by some as dull or slow. But to some, the album is Arctic Monkey's best, or perhaps their most important. Without Humbug, it is unlikely their groundbreaking album, AM, would have arrived to help them conquer the world. Humbug, though, it seems, remains a record for the purists. And so, to help dissect and analyse and take us to the cornerstone, are three fans as pure as they come. So, let's meet our panel. First of all, regular podcast contrib- contributor Stephen Pryor is here. Stephen, welcome. Hello. Thanks. Um, and all the way from Portland, Oregon, it's Katie HF. She's a huge fan of AM. And I know full well that Humbug is her favourite album. Uh, bless, bless, oh, sorry, Katie. Yeah, welcome. And um, blessing us with his presence also is Jacob Stolworthy. He's a journalist. He writes for The Independent and interestingly wrote a piece on why Humbug is Arctic Monkey's best album 10 years after it came out. Guys, yeah. welcome one and all. And also, of course, Will Sparks, co-host of Mad Sounds. How excited are you for this podcast, Will? Very excited indeed uh, see the enthusiasm on everyone's faces on in this Zoom parish tonight. And I'm really pleased that we're recording a podcast about this album because it does cause a bit of conversation. You know, when you meet an, a like-minded AM fan, you always we, we always do our rankings, don't we? You know, where anyone we meet, we say, you know, what, you know, and, and we've got three, maybe four people in here that think Humbug is the number one. I think the best place to start, and I think, Jacob, I know you wrote about it in your piece as well, but that Reading gig. Uh, in 2009, um, it's obviously the place where they first perform. Well, actually, that's not true. They played a gig two days before Reading in, in Brixton, which um, I know a couple of us here were at. But that gig, it just sort of sets the tone already. It, it already encapsulates the mood and tone of the album and its performance, but also quite aptly, accurately reflects the reaction of the more casual audience as well. 
um, you know, reviews online and accusing it of being a bit low energy. So first of all, let's talk about that gig. And I'm Jake, I'm going to come to you because obviously you wrote about it in your piece. What did you make of Arctic Monkeys when they played Reading 2009? I mean, I understand that people were super angry, you know, they were, that they were deciding to fill the set with songs from the new album, which had just been released five days before. But for me, I mean, I'm sure you guys are the same. Part of the excitement when it comes to Arctic Monkeys, and I don't think the same can be said for a lot of other bands, is hearing the new music and just kind of seeing how they're going to incorporate it into their live acts, however that may be. And I think it was just a one-two punch of the half the songs being very different to the songs from the previous two albums and it being full of those songs. And then they're kind of like moody demeanor on stage, not really kind of seeming to give a shit. Just kind of turned these like, just these like beer chugging revelers who were just expecting, I bet you to go to the dance floor, you know, three <laughs> times. We're just like, wait, what? This isn't, this isn't what we wanted, uh, which you yeah, can understand. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it did set the precedent for what has been a bit of a, uh, a rocky relationship with the fans in that album. Stephen, you were at that gig, I know full well. Um, what, what did you make of it at, at that exact time? Yeah, it was, it was definitely polarized. Like even being there, I remember, like even in the crowd, like I've, I don't remember feeling such like mixed reviews. Like I think like, we were obviously there together, loving every minute of it and having like learnt that album in five days, going crazy <laughs> for it. But I remember people just being a bit confused, like kind of what Jacob was saying and, and sort of not really knowing how to process it all because I think that the vast majority of that crowd and people at that time have got such a strong emotional connection and it was almost like that was being challenged a bit because they built an emotional connection on something that they recognised and were really comfortable with and then all of a sudden like I think the one-two punch is a really uh, is a really nice analogy because like you had this comfort of like these tracks that you've fallen in love with in the last few years and then you've got this fucking weird other thing that's coming in that sounds nothing like what's come before and I think that it was a that gig specifically was a very very interesting like uh very confrontational actually to that fan base as well to kind of um I think send a message as well and I think sure we'll get into it but there were some really I think choiceful decisions when it came to like set list and playing stuff like red right hand second like as a b-side of like a like a really dark and kind of suspicious b-side on the biggest stage was a very confrontational thing to do and so I think it set a tone and I think there was a lot of deliberate choices as well made at that time. Yeah. I mean, let's rewind um, a little bit pre that gig then and go back to the, the couple of years before. So Arctic Monkeys were two albums down and in 2008 they released, or Alex released a Shadow Puppets record. So Katie, do you want to, do you want to talk to us a bit about what you were expecting from a third Arctic Monkeys album at that time? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a lot different in America how the monkeys kind of came here and broke through. So I didn't hear Humbug until quite a bit later. You know, we, I, right. I, I honestly wasn't really familiar with them until Do I Want to Know came out, you know? Um, sure, of course, of course. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, in, in the States, or at least in Portland, I'm pretty big, you know, in the music scene here. Um, people kind of know the first record or they know uh, AM. And there isn't a lot in between. Like normally when I meet people and we actually get to talking about Humbug and stuff like that, they're usually musicians and that's why they, they, they know it a little deeper. So um, for me, it was more like kind of going backwards from uh, hearing Do I Want to Know and then getting really interested in their music and then kind of working my way backwards to Humbug where I had kind of done that same thing where I was listening to AM a lot and I was listening to you know the first record a lot 
And then it was really weird going to Humbug because it was just so, you know, it almost sounded like a different band in, in some ways, you know, yeah. I'm kind of filling in those gaps there. Um, yeah. So it was just, I don't know, it was interesting for me to kind of like see it all later on as opposed to seeing it as it came out. So like for you guys, was it, was it really crazy to like, to have it go from these first two that are such high energy and so, you know, just kind of like all encompassing and then yeah. suddenly it's like this deep, heavy vibe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was in school at the time and I just, yeah, I remember the transition. It, it was quite bizarre. I think Steve was, me and we were having a little chat about this earlier. The, if, we, if we talk about the kind of first interactions with the Humbug era, and I think Will will have a different, unique perspective because he's a bit younger as well. But Steve, if you just start maybe talking to us about that first, you know, the hair, the length of hair and things like that, obvious things like that, just really coming straight at you. Yeah, there's a there's a few things that really stand out, and I remember the f- the first thing, and it's re- like I remember it really vividly, and it's quite it's funny as well because it's a bit of a testament to still the fact that the way at, even at that time that you would like consume music news would be quite different, and it was still the very dying ends of like the enemy days, and I remember it would have been a few months probably before it came out, picking up the enemy, and it wasn't even a cover um, edition, but it's probably in a, I think it was in page three, inside page, um, and there was just a there was just a photo of them in the studio basically with a very small um story about that they're recording and i remember opening it and thinking what what like what is that because honestly like alex turner like to me at the time was like he looks like a girl like it was like very very (laughs) confronting and like this is someone who again like you've got this very clear identity that it's also so important to think of like they built their original success on an identity and it was very clear and it was like very very relatable and then all of a sudden like you're opening this and I remember thinking like I don't know what to do with that like thing that is there um and that I remember being the first thing but I think that just in the in the months that proceed that followed that just before the album there were some really interesting things that they did to kind of seed in like this new identity and I, I don't know if you guys remember but they did a lot of like the view from like video diaries at the time, which again were like quite confronting because they were so different, but they were also very humorous. So they kind of balanced this transition of like, we're still like that band that you know with that wit and that identity, but they're also like positioning themselves in a completely different way. So I think that that was a really interesting time. And I think it was quite well, whilst it was quite shocking, it was also quite well drip fed as well and kind of allowed you to go on that journey a little bit. They were our band, weren't they? Me and Steve, I know from when we were. 14 the first album was very much the sort of first proper album that we probably got into and changed our musical opinions and lives forever and so because of that we you know you have a bias towards them and you you follow them and probably whatever they did we would have been easily impressed by or, or, or enjoyed but Will I know that you obviously were a bit younger at that time and so Arctic Monkeys would have been pretty much around from the minute you started listening to music already so for you, what was it like, the transition to, to the Humbug era? Were you already a big Archie Monkeys fan? Were you into the two albums before? So I was 14 when this album came out. And I think if you want to have... There's, there's a different type of connection that you guys will have simply because you were there and present and, you know, seeing it live when it came out. But it's disappointing that I wasn't around to experience that first burst of the Arctic Monkeys in 05 yeah. and then Favourite Worst Nightmare, very, you know very shortly after that, I would have loved to have been a part of that scene. This is why Humbug 
is slightly more important to me because, you know, I was 14. Um, see that development into a teenager and you're moody when you're 13 and 14 and it's a moody record. It's a record mm. you can take away to your bedroom and sort of connect with and be a bit moody with too. And I think, um, I think that's why it's quite special. Um, it, it's not about going out and being on the dance floor and, you know, trying to chat girl up. It's, it's about a whole lot more. And I think with, with Humbug musically, especially with the production as well. I think it's, it's 100% one of them, an absolute masterpiece. I mean, I know we'll come on to that later, but it, it, in terms of my listening experience to Humbug, it, it came at a time when I think you really start to connect with an album. And, and it, yeah. it's weird because I don't call it like my album. You know, you were saying you, with you there, you and Steve have your band. We all mm. have, always have our band and really Humbug should be my album. And I don't think I could say that with any Arctic Monkeys album, which is weird because I didn't come, I wasn't around when they first came about. I wasn't as into them as I was when you guys were 16 or uh, you guys were 16, 17, or maybe that more important age of um, age when you're at school. But it, it's certainly looking back, I guess a bit disappointed that I wasn't as into it. But when I, when I look back at it, it's, um, it's definitely the album that I think has the most resonance. Having like, you know, fucking following just every bit you can, scrap details you can beforehand. When the album was finally released, I was on a family holiday um, in uh, Devon uh, or Cornwall, somewhere around there. And, <laughs> same uh, thing. We, yeah, same, same thing. And we bought, uh, I bought it, I bought, I bought the, the, the actual CD and was like listening to it in the car radio. And I remember my family, uh, my brother wasn't he was he wasn't there but he's a big fan as well so he would have been like championing as well because he loves it but my other family were like wait this is the same band who did like i bet you look you know just really confused and i buzzed off that i was like oh yeah like they're not just going to be doing the same thing over and over again which is you know like you don't want a band to do that do you so i think that initial kind of realization that they were you know discomfort because i knew they were going down a different route but it's confirmation that it was going to be a new era something completely different to what they've done before i just found so exciting and i think like you said when arctic monkeys are a band that you love so much you kind of probably will go down you'll just like take whatever you're being spoon fed won't you because yeah. because, because because it is you just kind of buy into them as musicians and songwriters mm. um and i think yeah the first time i listened to it was i like was I instantly kind of like taken with it in the same way as the first two albums? Maybe not. I can't really recall, but mm. I listened to it a lot of times. I was, I was, you know, possessed to listen to it again and again. And uh, it, like about three listens in, I was like, this is going to be one of the most important albums of my lifetime. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well that's, yeah. That, amazing to think that with, uh, at that time. So Going around bloody Cornwall. <laughs> 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 now Josh Omi produced this album and I think his effect is, is very plain to see it's a very different sound but Stephen and we were chatting about this earlier that he's not James Ford also sort of co-produced the album and you can see his effect on on certain tracks can't you yeah I, I read a, uh, I was rereading some of the reviews of the album actually earlier and what comes up quite a lot is like uh, which I definitely agree with is the, the idea of like uh, looseness that like Josh on mm. gave. So, and the comparison was given to favorite worst nightmare, which is so interesting, which is like, I think it was described as like, it's so tight that like, it feels like it's going to have a heart attack. And it's so true. Like favorite worst nightmare is unbelievably refined, isn't it? And then 
this album feels yeah. like it's so much like looser. It's got a lot more space. And I think that that is very much uh, a Josh Om influence. But then, interestingly, as you said, you still have the James Ford. I think he did three tracks and he produced uh, Cornerstone, Secret Door, My Propeller. Um, and I think that there's probably something in like having, which are also really big tracks in the album as well, and having some of that consistency probably from the earlier days, um, I think it's probably ended up being a really nice blend across the two. But I think, yeah, Josh Om's influence I think, is, is so obvious, but particularly versus Favourite Worst Nightmare, it's really interesting to see that, um, that kind of idea of it being less tight, which I think gave them a lot more kind of space to be more creative and, and challenge the sound that they were making. Katie, what, what did you think? Obviously, you discovered it slightly later and were you kind of just listening to Arctic Monkeys and came across Humbug and thought, oh, hey, on this one, this album sounds a bit different to the other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I always remember hearing uh, Crying Lightning for the first time was, I think, the first yeah. track I heard on on Humbug and, you know, kind of, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you guys, but, um, you know, I'm almost the exact same age as Alex and I remember, like, it just hit this, like, that moodiness, you know, like, I still have that, like, I know you said you guys have it as a teenager, I still do, I like the really <laughs> dark, kind of weird stuff, you know, my favorite band growing up was, like, the Smiths, and so I like that kind of, like, you know, that, that kind of deeper kind of artistic creativity. And I think what I really loved about Crying Lightning when I first heard it, it's kind of sinister, you know, it like that, yeah. that riff comes up immediately and he's talking about things being twisted and deranged and it just like, it just hit me and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I need to hear more of this. So then of course I go and like, I think I, at first I listened a lot to Crying Lightning and Cornerstone were the two that kind of got me. And then, you know, as you kind of like that, you start listening to it more and more. And I just started picking up on all this kind of like, really poetic lyricism and this kind of like romantic, you know, uh, narrative that he was creating and everything. And it just really struck a huge chord with me. And then it was funny too, you know, I've always been a big Queens of the Stone Age fan as well. And so yeah. putting, putting that together, you know, the two, I actually think that kind of, I know this was out a little bit later, but um, like Clockwork and Humbug kind of go together really mm. well for me in that same kind of, the same vibe, the same kind of like moodiness and all that. I really love both of those together, so. Uh, this album is very much um, the start, probably, of Arctic Monkeys making almost concept albums as well, isn't it? There's always there's a very strong theme running throughout, um, and that's plain to see in in sort of the fashion of the band as well. This is when we start seeing a few more leather jackets, and black jeans, the longer hair, and, and so I just kind of wanted to uh, to ask you guys about that. You know, do you remember Jacob? that having an influence on your own choices, what you were wearing day to day and that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, um, much to the um, mockery of my friends. I, th I think like <laughs> the thing is like, I look back now and ironically, it's probably my least favorite era for the, the look and the style. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, don't get me wrong, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, in. everyone's looking at you like, what? All right, mate. All right. <laughs> what do you want to say that here? <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, for me, it, it, it was a suck it era where I was like, Alex Turner is like the coolest ever with, you know. Sure, the, sure. With, yeah. You know, um, and, and like going to the AM. But like for this one, I, you know, don't get me wrong. At the time, I loved it. I adored it. And I wanted, I grew my hair out. I did everything, you know, I, I was going to do whatever he did. He could have shaved it off and I would have shaved it off. Uh, but looking yeah. back, and I think it was a necessary style for the sound of the album and yeah. just these kind of like really like like these really obscure metaphors that he obviously would have had no place in the first two albums that can find this this crazy life in these josh hon produced tracks 
if he was singing those with the same hair that he had for the pre- a few years before, or the hair you go on to have in a few years' time, it just kind of wouldn't have worked, would it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you notice the whole band grew their hair out? that long yeah like kind of yeah. towards the end of it matt gets this big like afro going on because it's like not really growing say, down when i said earlier about my first like the first thing i saw in the enemy you're like oh my god they look so different other than matt he's still there in like his tracksuit <laughs> bottoms and you're like <laughs> clinging on to that consistency of like before like at least something is an ever present it, it, yeah it, it suits like it suits um some of them more like nick it's fine it's great nick really just suits into that humbug era but jamie it just you're like what how does he pull this off like yeah. this little scrappy I feel, like, I feel like it's the last of like when you talk about style it's the last of their like almost non-ironic style as mm. in like everything that came after that is like I dress like a rock star now like ri- like ridiculous clothing yeah. and that isn't in a I say that in a very positive way because I think they pull it off in every era but like even like Humbug is the last of like they're still dressing like relatively normal blokes like rock stars you know but like they're still in like skinny jeans and jackets and i think like people talk about the whole humbug era as like the gateway to allow them to do everything that came after and i think even in like style that's true they were like look we're going to show that we can like we can also do like the heavy rock look and then it kind of i feel like everything after this point then becomes like they're operating in a slightly different like particularly in terms of style like in a slightly different world whereas humbug was like the last of that like still clinging on to being a bit more normal you know it was like the last of alex kind of like more internal personality too if that Mm. makes sense like he seemed a little more reserved and you know they still rocked out and stuff but there was definitely a huge shift between his kind of personality and performing style from humbug to suck it and see on you know that's kind of when he like became his own like like you said kind of like a rock star vibe Let's yeah. let's talk about that actually. The the Alex of of the interviews as well. Like I mean, I don't know if you've revisited. I've been revisiting just pre- prepping for this podcast. I don't know if you have Will as well. It's he's still he's so different even then to the to the Alex that we have now. The Alex now is, is such a caricature, but he's so shy and he's so nervous, isn't he, Will? In the, in some of those interviews. Yeah, and I think it's the I think it's the part of the band as a whole that gets overlooked. Really, um, if you watch if you watch an interview from any other huge band, you get a varying range of styles. You get the sort of structured, you know, I've been here and answered these questions a hundred times. You might get a sort of you know an Oasis style where they like to chuck a few swear words in and not really care what they're saying because they're all cut off. With, with Alex, I think it's actually fairly consistent. Um, he's always just been a bit odd in interviews um and I, I get what you're saying about you know it now it is a bit of a caricature and i i sort of respect him for it i just don't think that he's got much time for interviews in general and why mm. should he some of these journalists ask exactly the same questions you know <laughs> yeah, what's, it, what's it <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> of course not jacob a fine fine journalist god <laughs> give me the chance <laughs> to interview <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> piece, please do. um <laughs> But, you know, some of these people are asking, you know, you know, what's it like to be on tour and, uh, what's, you know, what's the banter like on the tour bus? And he must sit there as a very intelligent man who's got a lot of very interesting things to say. He must sit there and think, you know, why am I, why, am, why should I bother? And I sort of respect him for it, actually. And I think that to some people, it will be quite disappointing when they look at, you know, their favourite rock star or their favourite musician and they come across a bit bland because they want 
they want more they want answers they want personality and they want pizzazz in front of the camera and they want interesting you know insights everything they do but it's actually something i've always loved about arctic monkeys and i've just loved the troll nature of his interviews mm-hmm. um because it, it sort of mugs off the interviewers in a, in a yeah. way i think I, I think that's true but i do think that that comes a bit later with more of the confidence because i think in this era you don't quite see that ownership of interviews which because I, I remember one from maybe the AM era, like with an American guy called Stryker, and Stryker was on like K Rock, and he's like, "Well, yeah. Stryker, if you can pull off these shots, <laughs> I remember that one, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you can pull them off better than I can, Stryker, anytime." And it's like. I, I I don't know because I, I I see I see consistencies in interviews all the way from the early days up until now. In the, the fact, it's quite weird, but I think I do remember one. It was just before Humbug, and some interviewer asked, you know, okay, and who are you? And he went, oh, uh, Alex. <laughs> no, no, sorry, uh, no, what band? Oh, sorry, Artie Monkeys. <laughs> like, and yeah, he's just completely, he's just like he was just not interview ready. I mean, I don't know if media training exists for some bands. I'm sure it does nowadays. But I, I've always, whether it was Humbug or the interviews now, I've always really enjoyed interviews just because they give me a laugh, not necessarily because I get any insight from them at all. Jacob, as a journalist, how do, how do you view Alex? Certainly around this era, his sort of form in interviews. How would you cope? Oh, mate, I would, uh, he'd, he'd probably be like, well, Jacob, and I'd be like, oh, for God's sake, I'm not going to get to this into am I about fanboying. Uh, no, I, 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 I completely agree with everything that was just said. I, I think um, if journalists who go in kind of expecting to kind of uh, write the book on Alex Turner, they're never going to come out with what they want. Um, and I think that, lends, that, that creates an excitement around an interview with Alex Turner for us as fans. But if you are someone who isn't really aware of him or his kind of spiel you probably come away with it be like that guy is either arrogant rude or just like a bit socially unaware but because we know him <laughs> and we love him and we get we get his deal and we get that he's kind of a singer in a band who doesn't really shouldn't really have to like talk about those songs or talk about you know any decisions he's making because it kind of ruins the mystique of that exactly um then i, I think it comes across as like admirable yeah i think like I mean, everything that came before was also built on such a cynicism towards the press generally, and like it almost was a bit of a uh, a bit of a selling point for them, wasn't it? Like the total rejection of the media became in itself kind of an exclusivity, didn't it? And so, I think that at this time he's sort of like still clinging on to that to some extent as well, um, and it shows really. But also probably like. I also think a lot of the interviews are just probably reflect where he is at on a personal level, which is like going through a period of quite visible change. Um, And yeah, you're right. You don't get that sense of like total confidence from him either, do you? And I think he's probably trying to navigate a little bit what that looks like in in through these interviews. And you can sense the vulnerability, even like you said, Mm. even like the tone of voice and like the answers to questions feels extremely vulnerable at the time as well. So I think it, um, yeah, I think it's a weird thing where, like, also, don't forget the age as well. Like, I think oh, you yeah. think of it being three three albums in, number one albums. Like, you, you assume you're talking about someone who's 30 years old, but what, 2009 would have been, like, 22, 23? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're going through someone who's, like, you're going through a period of someone whose entire life is, like, being formed in front of everyone's eyes as well. And I think that that shows in his demeanour quite a lot as well. I think even in those early band interviews around that time as well, like, he's got... Matt, he's got 
Jamie that he's got crutches. And you know, I think on the latest uh, tour he did in 2018 of interviews, a lot of it was on his own. So he's completely changed. He doesn't need that same support group for, for the interviews anymore. Yeah, he um, defers so, to Matt in interviews a lot, which I always does. find. Like, like someone asks him a question, and he just kind of looks at Matt, and then yeah. Matt gives some like silly, amusing answer. <laughs> I love it. And Matt is so chill as well, isn't he? He is really he's chill. Just, he's so funny. He's just there, just like, and he kind of he kind of buys into Alex's weirdness as well, and just yeah. it's like it's like everyone in the room is like daring someone to say something about it being awkward, but like Matt is just rolling with it. No, this is absolutely normal. No problems going on here. Um, which is which is hilarious, right? Let's quickly just talk about the album cover as well. I think it's obviously an important part of any album. The artwork is a photograph that was taken by Guy Arok, who I assume was the the monkeys photographer at the time, and he took it on the last day of recording the album. But it's it's, it's a very bizarre photo to have on the front of your album, isn't it? It's almost as if I look at the album cover after I've listened to the album and then try and join the dots as if to what I've just listened to. I guess with this one, it's quite tricky because, like you say, it's mm. just a picture of them, I mean, seemingly dicking around the studio. However, the kind of like the dark purple really suits the mood of the album. And when I look back and I look, look at the cover and have just have give it a full listen, as, as I did today, um, it, it really matched. The, like the first album with Chris McClure on the front, Mm. Um, you know, I think there was a, a lot of sort of misconception for who it actually was in the early days of the Monkees. Um, second album, okay, it, it's a house with a couple of parties going on with some fleshing lights, but this one I could actually match them up a bit better. Um, and it, it, it's a bit of a moody cover for a bit of a moody album, and, and I absolutely love it. I mean, I agree about kind of the color palette being really, um, you know, connecting really well with the tone. I also, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, I love how Alex is kind of the least featured on it. He's kind of cut off yeah. doing this kind of like shrugging motion, <laughs> you know? It's just like, it just seems very like, it's kind of a time capsule for that, you know, that moment that they were recording and everything. And I think it, it works perfectly. Yeah. I also yeah. just think that linked to what we were saying before is that, um, don't forget how invisible they were as individuals before this as well and it was really significant that they chose to put themselves on the front I think like they had really like built themselves an entire band and a, like an entire the, the whole idea of them was that they rejected like being front-facing didn't they up until this point and I think that again I think that there's something quite choiceful about that where they're sort of saying that Again, I think probably to some extent to kind of shock people and to make people realise that this is what we this is what we are now and this is what we want to be and like we're not kind of um, we're not going to pussyfoot around that a little bit. But like it's, I think now in retrospect, like we 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 see them so much more visibly as individuals. But back then they were still very very like closed, and so I think it was a big leap putting themselves on the front as well. And they haven't done it since either, obviously, which is interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about the music then. And I think before we talk about the album tracks, um, let's talk about Red Right Hand, which they played it second at gigs after they'd opened with uh, My Propeller. It, it, it's quite different to, to the list of Arctic Monkeys covers because I think a lot of the Arctic Monkeys covers are quite funny. Um, you've got, you know, Drake and Girls Aloud. And they're basically less, they're less serious, aren't they? And, and they kind of try and put their own stamp on on songs and and this one though is they took it very seriously that you know they were they were putting a record out there that they wanted people 
to to listen to properly and they put it in their set and that you know that showed what kind of uh, importance they had on it so you know what did you guys think jacob i'll come to you first about this track and sort of signifying the start of the humbug era it's a statement isn't it it's a statement to just cover a nick cave song in general but to then Mm. just kind of throw it second into your set it's it's a um it's a statement of intent that I personally, if I had been at Reading, I probably, if I'd been at Reading, I, like you guys, I would have consumed the album and would have mm. been expecting maybe something a bit different. Uh, if, if, you know, so when it came on, I probably wouldn't have been ultra surprised. But when I did hear about it and when I, and certainly when I first heard it, I was like, what? This is a, ga- a bold move, throwing yeah. that in seconds uh, into your song. As it stands, I absolutely love this cover. I'm not going to say I prefer it to the original because I don't want to get absolutely slayed by Nick K fans. But I think there is an urgency and an anger and ferocity to it that is just, you don't really get in, in many covers of this song or just really no. in general um, in many covers that the Arctic Monkeys have ever done. Yeah. yeah. Katie, were you, are, you, are you a fan of this cover? Oh yeah, I love it. And I'm, um, you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and say it. I think I like it better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I agree. Come at me fans. Um, I do love Nick Cave though. And I think that, you know, them, being so uh, particular. I was just watching that Reading gigs. I don't think I'd seen it in a long time. And uh, man, it works wonderfully in the set list though. It really sets a mood and you can tell they take it very seriously. And I imagine that just has to do with their respect for Nick Cave, you know, <laughs> like um, just making yeah. sure they do him justice. And but, but I think you're right about the urgency. It kind of brings a little more, just like a, everything's a little heightened, I think, in that cover. And yeah, I think it's very successful. It's funny you say that respect for Nick Cave because I saw an interview Alex did with Zane Lowe and he was talking about the fear of getting the lyrics in the wrong order because obviously they come so fast. But that just shows you, like, I think that there are certain musicians Alex Turner very much respects. Nick would be right near the top of that list, wouldn't he? Um, Which is probably why they took the cover so seriously, you know. With someone like Drake, it's a bit more irreverent. They're not too bothered what Drake thinks of it. But with Nick Cave, Alex definitely cares about what he thinks of the cover, so I'm sure he wanted to do it justice. Um, right, so let's let's start talking about the album tracks then. Um, we start with with My Propeller and one of the, f- the funniest things I find with this track is is what Matt Howders used to say is that when they in this era, they'd obviously open with the, the opening chords and the crowd would jump up like with the and it's going to go into a really fast song. But then actually it slows right down and it yeah. kind of, it's the perfect encapsulation of what Humbug is probably all about. And we go into the slow, moody rock. So, and, and we, we, me and Will were speaking to Jack Wood, uh, um, Radio X DJ on our podcast last week. And he was talking about the games that Arctic Monkeys would play with fans, right? They're, they're, they are a humorous band in their lyrics and all sorts of things. And I think that's one of those things as well, where you wouldn't be surprised if that was very deliberate to have that kind of fast paced start and then slow it right down. So, um, yeah, let's talk about my propeller then. Um, Stephen, what, do, you, you, do you want to kick us off on, on the, what this opening track means to you? Yeah, I love my propeller. I, I absolutely love it. I always have. And it's because of what you said, which is it's like the entrance into this whole era. And, like, it's so it's so arresting, isn't it, with, like, the, uh, with the introduction. I think the other thing that about my propeller that's really interesting like let's be fair it's pretty it's overtly sexual basically in its nature and again like if you go back like two years about like this kid talking about like swapping jumpers so he can try to get into a club to like try and kiss a girl and like this track then comes along and it is 
the theme of it. Like, I don't think he's taken any half measures. And it's like track one, straight in with that. And I remember at the time listening to it, and obviously we were a bit young at that point as well. Um, and again, I, like, I, I remember that being like, oh, wow, like, that's a real, uh, like, shifting of the gears, which again, like, completely falls into the theme that you mentioned, which is like track one straight in in terms of like a different kind of sound but also of all the tracks on that album i think it dresses like a very new theme to them in a very very upfront way as well um i love it and i, and I think yeah it's uh it's such a great summary of the album and the sounds that, are, that come that follow it as well in the album yeah i think matt like the, the point you make about the start and the drums coming in it's almost as if they let the last album run for an extra 10 seconds <laughs> took it <laughs> stuck it at the start of this album and just and you're right it is a game with with any one who consumes consumes the album they probably thought right bought humbug third arctic monkeys album here we go first five seconds there they are the drums the crash and then it just it drops mind. and it just yeah. drops into this sort of i don't know this this sort of gloom and this this uh, impending sense of dread already and it's only the first track and it's why i'm gonna sort of controversially say it's not one of my favorites on the album um Ooh, here it goes Shots I, fired. I, I, am a, I am a massive <laughs> i am a massive believer in the first track being your app it being something in your armory that is really serious and something mm. that is going to set the album alight and before we're not going to talk about now i think it's vastly inferior to the second track we're going to talk about if they switch these around i think it would have been a better decision um i i just feel it jumps tempo a bit too much and i just feel that um to be fair lyrically it's one it's it's untouchable and it's it's a fantastic um it's a fantastic showcase of what turner can do with the song and how good a writer he is um and before before we go and start talking about the music more i, I think it's it's fair to say not just because we're massive Arctic monkeys fans and we don't want to sound like sycophants to but he is he is to be considered the greatest songwriter possibly of all time and it's and I think Humbug really brings him into his own in that sense. Some of the poetry and some of the witticisms that he makes on the album are absolutely unbelievable. Um, and I think make it clear when, when we talk about any song, when we're doing this debate, it's not that I don't like the song. I do like the song. I like yeah, of all of the songs on this album. But I wouldn't say if, if you're going to give me a, t a chance to give me a gold or silver medal, it wouldn't be my propeller. Sure. But I'm going to shut up until the next song. I sit a little bit above Will in terms of it's not one of my favourites, but I, I have grown to love it more and more over the years. And I think it's just like, it's just a very understated opening track. And for that alone, it's like, oh, okay, you, like they had balls to kind of throw that in as number one. Um, the, te the change in tempo just like adds this air of unpredictability to the track. And I kind of like how it chugs along. And I kind of always view it as like, it, is a, it, it just kind of sinks into your skin in a, in, a, in a way that you just don't really un yeah. understand how they do it. Um, but I mean, like a lot of a lot of Arctic Monkey songs, to be honest, but it, it has a uh, there's a bit of gravitas to it that I still actually can never put my finger on, and that's kind of why I like it. Because because yeah. people like Steve and like my brother, like they they uh, who stand by this song and say it's one of their favourites, and I that that kind of um, uh, I find that quite alluring in its own way that it has that uh, effect on some people. Hmm. It, it's hard comparing songs on Humbug. I'm sure I'll repeat this, but it's like you're comparing like really really great songs to like some of the best songs they've ever done you know yeah. so um i think it's a wonderful opener and i think it really sets the mood but i would say it's probably on the one of the weaker tracks in my opinion sure okay okay it's some split opinions i i yeah. personally think for me it's it's right up there i think i love it as an opener an album opener 
I think. And they, they sort of said that, you know, very deliberately they put it first because, because of the way it embodies the new style of what humbug is um so katie do you want to talk about crying lightning then i remember i just quickly hearing it for the very first time because obviously it was the first single that they released so that is you're very much i mean for you it's a different experience because you've heard it not on its own you heard it as part of the album but you know what do you think of this song i just think honestly i think it's probably one of their their very best songs in their whole discography um you know, that riff, like I was saying, it's so, yeah, just kind of like dark and sinister. It's just like setting this mood. And then, you know, the lyricism of it, it's so clever, you know, all these kind of like turns of phrase. I think, I think the second verse of Crying Lightning is probably one of my favorite little pieces of lyricism he's ever written, you know, and, and he's singing it as he's playing this whole riff over it too. And it's just, you know, it's, it just, it just covers so many bases, you know, it's like kind of this romance, but there's also this introspectiveness to it where like he's trying to figure out how he even wants to deal with this person who's like overtaking his life like this. It's, it's just brilliant. It's just one of their very best songs. And I also, I love the, uh, the guitar solo in it. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. had Jack Wood on here last, last, uh, last time, which will be going out um, soon. Um, and he said, um, I think he was referring to a review. He said the bass line to this track sounds like a fat kid licking their lips. And <laughs> it's hard to find a better description of the bass line of this track. What, what I love about this track, the way the first part of the song transitions into the second, because the first part is quite slow. You could say it's quite ponderous, but when the drums smash in just after the first chorus, and then, like like Jacob was saying about the previous song, that air of unpredictability, what makes it a good song is that real kick into life in the second part of the song. You know, the next time I called you, I caught my own reflection, that part of the song, talking about, I think that, that for me, caught, sort of crowned it. Um, I will co-sign that. Uh, for me, it's a top five track, but that second verse, which you both just spoken about is for me one of the best written probably probably verses of all time um i think it's a, it's gold dust just not only the lyrics but the way he delivers it like you say it's so different from the first verse and like just i just don't think other bands are quite as capable of pulling that that off in quite that way um but whenever that ver it gets to that verse i just can't help but belt it out wherever i wherever i am it's just <laughs> absolute brilliant gold dust songwriting and just in terms of the lyrics on it as well, something that I love about it is like, uh, maybe a cynic could uh, say that, oh, did they become a bit like pretentious and they tried to explore these new areas? But like the guys also chucking in like pick and mix and gobstoppers and like these ice cream like references in there. So like he retains that like that wit that kind of can really like, especially as like, it's extremely relatable to like so many people. And yet like all of, also it's like, challenging all of like what where they've been previously and like i think clinging on to like that humor as well it's mm. really really noticeable in this track and um, we move on to dangerous animals which for me is probably one of the weaker tracks on the album but it's it's notable for me for helders drumming i think that's mm. where we we see and i think this era probably starts to really highlight how talented Matt Helders is and how Alex probably relies on him quite a lot I think it was around this time as well there was an article written maybe in the Guardian talking about Matt Helders being the backbone of the Arctic Monkeys and I think that's probably just highlighted by his incredible drumming ability in, in this track what do you guys think of, of Dangerous Animals perhaps controversially this is a top five track for me um, <laughs> yeah uh, I, I think it's to be honest 
maybe sentimental value when I was first listening to the album this is one that kind of stood out to me initially um and just has stayed stayed with me there ever since and it kind of became a thing where me and I keep mentioning my brother, but he is like very kind of linked to my fandom of Arctic Monkeys growing mm. up. We um we just kind of both realised that this song wasn't a favour of a lot of people's, but it was for us. Then when we came to, um, we got to see them do Humbug all the way through at a Hammersmith show uh, the following year. Oh. We we went wild for this song, but no one else was. So, <laughs> so now I kind of, when I listen to it, it just reminds me of that. But, but trying to pinpoint what I like about it is I've just got this weird um, infatuation for uh, songs that um, spell out words. I just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> It's quite lazy songwriting, but 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 also it's yeah. like fuck it, why not? And and it, it kind of works here uh, in a way that I I don't think I'll ever quite understand. Uh, but with the galloping, you know, the galloping riff and and just some of those evocative lyrics building to just the crescendo of spelling out the title of the song, it's a top five track for me. <laughs> I think I think what Jacob's described there is probably what would make it a bottom five track for me um because you do need to have a slight bit of meh on the album and if it's gonna be with this album i think this might be it i'm so sorry jacob (laughs) is it to see you getting cut up in the i think i think it works really well i I do think it's kind of one of the weaker tracks as well but um i do a couple things i really like i love the um the kind of uh you know, stacked vocals, you know, it still has that kind of dark vibe. It has that kind of weird drumming. Like you said, it's like a really good, uh, you know, um, showcase of Matt's drumming abilities. It's just, you know, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's just in between so many stronger songs that it almost kind of gets me excited for the rest of the album when I hear it, because it's like, it's still setting up kind of that vibe that like my propeller was. So. Yeah. I don't, for me, it's not a standout track either at all, but what I do think is interesting about it is, what I think they had done well prior to Humbug is established that they very often don't follow like conventional songwriting of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, etc. And this is an ama- this is a brilliant example of that. Like this song is quite weird, I think, like inter like structurally. And what I quite like about that is that even I would definitely agree it isn't a standout track for me, but I think often when a band releases an album, the non-standout tracks, obviously people would consider them filler, and filler is so often like conventional track bung it in there people quite like it like let's get through it whereas at least like if you want to call it filler it's still quite um interesting i wouldn't say it's boring filler it's uh it might not be their best execution but it's like unconventional and unorthodox and i think that that's you know that kind of adds a little bit to the overall theme of the album we, we come on now to secret door which will be many people's you know in to- people's top threes maybe i'm sure top fives jacob where where does this one rank for you uh, yeah, top two. This uh, there you <laughs> um, go. and Dangerous Animals isn't number one. Just, just to let you know. <laughs> uh, but, but no, Secret Door, um, beautiful song. It breaks my heart that they don't play it live anymore. Um, sure. Because, uh, I just think it would fit into their set, especially the most recent sets, really well. Um, I love the, you know, how it starts with the, you know, the Falls and Parade is, is what it ends up going on to. So it kind of like comes full circle. Uh, but the journey to get there as well is just like really exciting and just kind of. The, the, the lyrics about, um, uh, you know, like kind of these labyrinthine buildings and, you know, a secret door is just kind of like exciting. Like, where is he going to lead you? I think Secret Door is near, is probably a perfect album. It's Poetry in Motion. It's my favourite song on the album. We had Tim Stillman on the podcast a few weeks ago and he, he said something really important about um, Oasis, not how it makes you um, 
think it's about how it makes you feel and i think you can flip that with the arctic monkey with arctic monkeys and go it's abs- it's all about how it makes you think but this song also makes you really feel as well and i think it's a perfect combination of both i when i listen to this song i find myself trying to work out what the words mean whilst absolutely just loving the track as well just loving mm. the music behind it i think my favorite part of the song is the end where it just sort of just drifts into that dreary you know i, I won't hit the high notes for the benefit of our listeners but that sort of dreary sort of just fading out with him just yelling falls on parade um and it's just it's such a beautiful song and around the time of this tour maybe like a year afterwards they were often closing on this and it was like the confetti ending as well the crescendo for that uh that final verse which was such a highlight live i remember that being like a really really like uh yeah defining moment of the live gig so it's a real shame that like that um that doesn't seem to have carried, but uh, yeah, just uh, I just remember that really being an amazing live highlight at the time. Oh, I love Secret Door. Honestly, it's just one of my, it's one of the the songs that made Humbug really kind of come together for me. The fact that you guys are like, Steve at least got to see it live. I mean, just dying of jealousy. Mm-hmm. I think if I could see them play any song live, it would probably be that one. And it's just like uh, what you're saying. Well, like it really is poetry. It's like, you could just read it as a poem and it would be beautiful in that sense, but it's just one of I think the most kind of succinct like storytelling songs that Alex has ever written and yeah especially that last verse I love that he can say something like like frolic and fuck about you know and but that it's still beautiful and it's still it's so romantic and you just see this whole picture painted for you in your mind it's just this is a wonderful beautiful song let's let's move on to potion approaching um Steve what, what what do you think of this one is it is it down there I think you know it's, it could be one for, for most people in the in the week a few tracks yeah it plays exactly in that same territory as dangerous animals for me like it's uh i would put it in that kind of maybe that bottom uh that bottom half for me but it's, it's still interesting like it's a mm. it's uh again i think it's an unconventional track like it doesn't really yeah. follow a particularly i think this was one of the critiques to be fair wasn't it at the time of the album that like that it was lacking a little bit in kind of choruses and hooks um which I think they've had that challenge leveled at them many times and even in the most recent album as well. Uh, I always just also really liked that uh, whenever they played it live, he would just change yours is the only ocean to Yorkshire is the only ocean. That was pretty much, <laughs> that's one of my favourite things. Oh, really? track as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, it feels like a bit of a transition, I think, as well, into the second half of the album. I, I really appreciate the song. Like Steve says, it is just like... If it is a failure, it's it's an odd one, and it's it's them trying to, well, Alex trying to be like, right, I'm going to just try and compose a song in a very different way now to what I've done, not only in the previous albums but the previous four, uh, four songs. Yeah, um, it's a bit like a like the scrappy little kid of the album, isn't it? It's just like it's it's, <laughs> it's going for something, but it's it's trying to like hit those punches, but not kind of making them. Um, right. But, but but and and then it, and then it kind of like segues midway through to like this kind of like this like trudgy kind of like jamming session. Uh, which which is really good, but it goes on for a bit too long, and it kind of after what you've had before, including Dangerous Animals for me, uh, the highs of those. Um, yeah, it, it's a bit of a come down. But then again, any song that ends on uh, "Would you like me to build you a go kart?" It's, it's just <laughs> get, get brought back like loads of points, isn't it? <laughs> do you do you think that this is like the B grade version then of Dangerous Animals? For me, it would be, yeah, it would yeah. be. If only they, if only they'd spelled out the title, Jacob. Imagine oh, right. could be. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Next time I listen to that song, I'm going to give that a go. Just see how it fits in the melody. I'll let you know how that goes. Be there for a while. I think it's, uh, I think potion approaching is a little underrated, to be honest. Um, 
I really love the super sexy breakdown at the end of it. I think kind yeah. of redeems it as a song. It also has one of my favorite lyrics from the whole album, which is, if I could be someone else for a week, I'd spend it chasing after you. I mean, like, who hasn't, like, felt that at some point? You know, that's mm. just such, like, a raw kind of little, like, nod to, I don't know, kind of like the, the themes of this album of, like, chasing after love and stuff like that. So we move on to Fire in the Thud, which it's it's an interesting one but i remember when this album certainly first came out and and probably for quite a few years afterwards would not have been anywhere near my top five but now i kind of think that it, it starts knocking on the door it just takes on a new life of its own it's it's a real grower um yeah so i wonder if anyone agrees with me on that i love the beginning it's very um i think it's hard to decide it's hard to um, decide on a style for this song Matt, you were saying, you know, what sort of influences on this song or, or, or Turner's influences as a whole, a lot of Hendrix, a lot of Cream in there as well. I think it's quite Hendrix, you know, just sort of, it's one of the more, maybe the later Hendrix tracks where he's just sort of noodling on the guitar. I mean, obviously that um, share between the two, the three guitarists, obviously, um, two guitarists even. But I think if I, I couldn't really decide on the style of the song and I don't think I can compare it to any predecessing song or, or successive song even. I think it's just in sort of, a little league of its own. Um, I love the love the backing vocals at the beginning. Um, I think it really adds to the track. Fire in the Five is a strange one for me because there was a, and I'm sure like many people and listeners will remember, there was a like an acoustic kicking around of Fire in the Five for years, really before this album. I think probably a couple of years before, which was like Alex Turner with a guitar on his own. Um, and I remember when this came out, thinking, oh wow, like because I think I've also become quite wedded to that acoustic version as well, which was a bit sort of like probably submarine I guess. Um, and then thinking, honestly, when I first heard it thinking, because I probably wasn't so like in tune with these kind of styles thinking like they fucked it up basically, because it was, uh, it lost a bit of that like uh, urgency. I think totally agree with you that on reflection, like it's a massive grower as well. And it's a really interesting way to have, transition that it's good to listen back now actually to the acoustic version and see that actually they've layered and essentially made a much more interesting song than what they probably had i think the other thing that's interesting on this one is you have the um female vocals towards the end as well from alison mosshart which is oh was also, that her yeah wow i never knew that that's wonderful yeah and that. um i think that it's a really amazing uh, like addition as well, but also it's uh it's such new territory. Like imagine the Arctic Monkeys putting like a I don't know a, like an American female vocalist on the last uh, towards the end of a track would have seemed absolutely insane like two years beforehand. So I think it's an interesting like moment of moving into new territory, and obviously since then they've explored with so many additional musicians that have come and been part of the recording process as well. And I think it's a really nice. Uh, Add and it's the first time that they really, I saw that they really opened that door as well into their into their sound. It's funny you say because I I honestly think this song is screaming out to be used in a film, like just for a really banging scene in a film. Um, mm. First kind of, and it's funny what Steve says about the acoustic track uh, being quite submarine because it's the first time I kind of thought, God, he, he could really kind of like uh, compose a, a soundtrack for a film and it be and it be amazing. And obviously he would go on to do that, um, but. Uh, I think Final Fight, it for that it wins points for me. Again, I think maybe when I was, oh, was I 16, 17 when it came out, maybe was a bit like wanting something else uh, to appreciate it as much as I do now. Uh, but definitely 
love it more with every listen. And I just love where it goes to, like with Alison Mossart's vocal at the end, but the way just like the tempo just completely slows down, like just, uh, you know, when they're uh, talking about um, poking them in their prying eyes. And it, it's just really eerie, actually, um, and really affecting. And I can see why some people, a more casual fan, would, wouldn't name it in their, mm. in their, fi- their favourites of this album. Uh, and it's, not, it's actually not in my top five, uh, but like Matt said, it's kind of like crept up over the past few years. Yeah. It shows them making songs that progress a lot. You know, there's this progressive quality to it where it has this big, you know, kind of breakdown at the end of it where it just starts, you know, it starts and ends in totally different places. And so again, it's kind of this like look at, you know, telling stories through songwriting, which I really appreciate. I'd put it kind of towards the middle, but there's, I think there's stronger tracks, but it is super beautiful and I love it. Yeah. I think Fire in the Thud is definitely a humbug ballad. Um, And then the next track, cornerstone is is as alex has, uh, said himself in an interview that i saw that it's more of a conventional structured pop song which i guess a bit more like secret door so i, I think what well, they always thought that humbug was going to be different but they didn't want it to be a complete departure mm. you know it's it's an evolution still as well and then so cornerstone is is this track that adds variety to the album and then you know it's it's an amazing track and and probably could fit on other Arctic Monkeys albums as well I think so let's talk about Cornerstone it's probably lots of people's maybe close to being favorite track Stephen what, what do you make of Cornerstone? Yeah I think you subbed up I've always felt of it as being a bit of an outlier which I think you kind of touched upon um but sort of not an outlier because like it could fit on any one of their albums. So in a way it's like the most Arctic Monkeys thing ever, but like in the concept of this album, it probably does feel like the one that is a bit more, and it's, this is a strange thing to say, it feels like a safer track to be on this album, but that by absolutely no means like takes away from the quality of it. I think he's written it and probably thought this is such an amazing track yeah. like this, ha- this has to, <laughs> it has to be on the album and, like, and i think if he's thinking like honestly i imagine like and i don't know maybe we're overthinking it but like if he was thinking of it as a concept he'd probably be like i don't quite know where that plays into the story but at the same time what a track so i think yeah. it's like a little bit of an outlier um there's not much I can say about Cornerstone that's probably not been said or thought by everyone already. It's such a brilliant song and it's such a, it's such a kind of turn classic as well, I think, in terms mm. of style and lyrics and storytelling and humour. Um, just an amazing track. Cornerstone is one that I think if you listen to it for the first time, you could honestly think, I don't really know what he's singing about. But when you listen to it more, you find out it, it's about a girl. It's about chasing a new love and it's about going to all of these places disguised as, you know, quirky pub names. And I'm sure we've all tried to look up whether those pubs exist. Um, they don't. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'd love to go and have a drink in the, uh, in the parrot's beak or, and you know, I think it, what, what the more you listen to the song, the more sort of clues you, you unravel about what he's, what, what he's actually singing about. And once you put those clues together, um, I think it's a contender for top for top track on the album. But you're right, Steve. I think he must have listened. I think they must have all listened to it and thought you've you've written a fucking blinder here. Um, and it's a poetic ballad as well. A lot of ballads lyrics are actually quite simple and they're quite emotive. But the more you listen to Cornerstone, the more you work out what he's chasing and you know um, smelt the scent on the seatbelt and just memories of a girl that he used to love and he's trying to find that girl again or maybe even a new love. You could interpret it so many ways, but it's 
such a fantastic tune. And I said that Secret Door is my favourite, but it's a heavyweight boxing match between Cornerstone and Secret Door for my for my favourite track on the album, hundred percent. I um I think if Secret Door is like the poem, uh, this is the story because it's like it, it is like um he just sets the scene so well, continues to set the scene so well. He's his protagonist, just going from pub to pub, and it's got a resolution, like, you know, more resolution than songs should have. And it's just so, seems so effortless in execution. Um, and all, all uh, also just how it's on the album, and I think the more casual fan would be like, oh, wait, Cornerstone's on Humbug, what? And it, it would almost prevent Humbug from being their least favourite, maybe, because Cornerstone is on it. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. so for that, I, I kind of have a lot of love for it as well, for making just, like, debates down the pub a bit easier uh, for, for Humbug's case. <laughs> but, but, but in terms of, like, songwriting ability, I do think um, this would rank in his top five. Even if it's, like, not oh. someone's favourite, you have to yeah. objectively be like, that is absolutely an incredibly written song. Yeah. Um, yeah, and for that, I mean, in terms of like, like approach, not to give anything away, but but the next song on this album is my favourite. Um, oh, Jacob is coming in with it as well. For reasons, I'm, I'm very that, happy to hear you say that. that say. J- jump but but this that actually would jumps Cornerstone down to third for me, which actually sounds like sacrilege, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> it does. You're going you're to you're uh, boot me out of this interview right now. <laughs> I'm worried. We, I, I, I think that you're right, though. It, it can be not your favourite, but you can objectively think of it as possibly the greatest song he's written, but maybe. Um, but but it not be their best song either, because there's other, lots of other factors that come into that. What do you guys think it means? Well, I really, I really enjoy people's interpretations of it, because uh, mm. there's a lot. You know, I always thought it was pretty straightforward, and then I've heard people say, like, well, is it about, like, is his girlfriend dead? Like, is was it a, was it a prostitute that he saw at the end? You know, yeah. stuff like that. Like, is I don't know. I, I always kind of interpreted it as exactly what it sounds like. But there's all these kind of yeah. ways. You I did can... as well. Mm. To me, it's to me, it's about a girl he's loved, and they're not together anymore. And he's um, going to a different pub maybe every weekend um with his mates and obviously uh, touched on you know the, the sort of disguised names of different pubs probably in Sheffield and he's going around and and he's looking he's not looking for that girl but he's looking for something as close to that girl that can possibly mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. and he, he and he can't find it um and when you know when he says I elongated my way home that maybe suggests he's taken one more stop just the one more chance to try and find her and I don't think he I don't think he does um and by the end of the song, I think you know, with the last line, you can call me anything, you call me anything you want. I think that's that's sort of admitting defeat in a way, and it's sort of um, saying quite a sad end to the song that I don't think he did find it in the end. You know, um, that that's my interpretation. But I think Katie's right. You could listen to this song, you could come up with loads of different. You, you could interpret it as him just on a shitload of drugs and, and <laughs> fictional pubs he's made up. You you could interpret it any way you want, but that's. That's that's my interpretation of it. Cornerstone okay. is my most listened to track of all time on Spotify. It is like definitely probably the most succinct, beautiful song he's ever written. It was the first song I learned on guitar when I started playing guitar. And I, I mostly just wanted to touch on the fact that it gave us one of the best music videos of all time. From <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do need to talk about that. 
<laughs> of, of just him. And like, you know, it's so funny because that video, it's just him standing there. I've watched it like dozens of times. It's just, for whatever reason, it's just, it just fits perfectly. I love him just standing there. I love the, 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 when there's kind of the guitar solo and he just stares at the camera for like, what, like 15 seconds. It's just brilliant. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay. So dance with Delia and I'm going to, going to jump in as well and, and agree with Jacob. This is my favorite track on the album. Um, it always has been, and so Stephen, I know I don't I know you kind of used to sort of share that opinion. Is that something you you agree with still? Yeah, I would say so. I would. It's a again, it's a bit like choosing children for me on this yeah. one. But uh, it's quite a simple song, though, isn't it? Really, it is for me. It's like it's that uh, it's that last minute where like yeah, it's that the, drop. that that drop and that like crescendo is the first of that nature that they and to be to be quite honest i don't really think that they've done a huge amount of that following either really where they've the build-up in that track like there's an anticipation isn't there for two minutes and like, it's you a bit like five it as, exactly that exactly that like it builds and like you get this eerie sense that something is like imminent and then that just unbelievable crash towards the end um which just feels like a massive release, just like a total release of yeah. like energy and emotion and everything. And particularly given like the theme of the song, which I think we probably won't go into depth of, because I think it's another one where the, the meaning is extremely debatable actually, but like it obviously is playing into themes about deception and about, um, you know, like obviously as per the title, lying, etc. So I think it creates this this kind of atmosphere and this like very very tense feeling that kind of is is very impactful. And then just that end that release is uh, for me like less so like being like oh like what an amazing theme. Just like a an ama- a bit like what Will was saying about like the feeling it gives you. It just it's that feeling of release is a really really uh, mm. compelling sound. And I think it's uh, yeah an amazing track. And I think uh, you know a really again very much challenging what they were at the time. You, yeah. you know, you know when like you we're, like we're having a chat about an album now, and, and you get maybe a couple of your friends or people who are like minded and love the album. When they say it's their favourite track, you almost at first you maybe disagree and go, no, no, it's not their best track. But because you guys got that opinion, I sort of want to challenge myself and bring it round to be my favourite track. <laughs> um, but I think with with Dance Little Light, I think it does creep into the top five and it's the the crash and the crescendo at the end is fantastic. But I almost want to challenge myself and bring it round to, to sort, to bring it round into my well, definite maybe top Jacob, five. Jacob, can you convince him? Oh God, the pressure. I, well, I'm going to have, I'm going to have Steve, Matt and Jacob on me going, well, it's fucking good. brilliant. Why don't you think, this it's just um by far one of their most mature songs and and what i mean by that is it just seems like a, a, a song you don't write until about seven or eight albums into your career and right. when you've got like a bit of age but you know at least in your 30s but when you're writing a song this this just like multi-layered and i'm not just talking about it in terms of lyrics i'm talking about in terms of instrumentation as well just like um and keeping it just really that taut and thinking it's one thing. And then like you say, like with that crescendo, which obviously is like the kind of the cherry on the top, um, just veering it into somewhere else entirely. It's just a really, really exciting music listening experience every time I hear it. Um, so much so that I'm just, you just have to turn it up. And like, if you're in the room with someone who doesn't, who might not like that song as much, you just kind of want to be like, shake them and be like, why are you not? Yeah, that this is 
probably a bit of a masterpiece. And I think as well, like I love to hear that it is your favourite as well, because it is not one that is commonly kind of no. spoken about, but obviously it is a common held opinion that it is very underrated and, and it is up there. Uh, so for that alone, I, I kind of love it for that. Um, yeah. Uh, just going being like the poster boy for what, what, what is believed to be an unpopular Arctic Monkeys opinion, when actually we all kind of know it's a bit of a masterpiece. It's funny. I compare it to five hundred five there because it's it's got the the the, um, the verse. It's just two chords, which is exactly what five hundred five. I mean, five hundred five maintains the two chords of the chorus as well, and this one adds in a couple more in, in in the chorus. But it's such simplicity, and it's it's that simplicity that creates and builds the tension, and then that's where you get the release. It's another example. I mean, something I've been thinking about going through each song like this is like each one is so thematic in its own way. You know, there's kind of these themes that each song pulls. And this one is a lot about, you know, like line and, and memory and stuff. One of my favorite lines from this song is, uh, can you hack your mind being riddled with the wrong memories? Like that's such mm. an interesting look at like our psyche. Like, are, are you lying to the point of you're actually believing these truths, even if they're not real, you know, like he explores so many different things. And then musically, it's just, it's, it's, it's just so wonderful. Um, I got kind of attached a little bit to the live versions of it where there's this kind of like key change at the end that I really, I remember I talked to you about that one, Steve, where it's just mm. like, it kind of even brought that up a little bit more than the studio version. But um, yeah, it's, it's just wonderful. I'm on board. We moved to a, another one, which is maybe more of the, of the casual fans favorites, but you know, you, you need those tracks from the album. Pretty Visitors is, is, is an amazing song. Uh, Will, where, where is it for you? Is, are you a big fan of this track? Yeah, I'm a big fan. Um, I, I, one thing about this song in particular I love is the organ at the beginning. If you would have said to any Arctic Monkeys fan, when, even when they were listening to Favourite Night, Worst Nightmare, by the way, there's going to be an organ in the next album, <laughs> followed by a crashing explosion of guitar and drums. Um, uh, it's another song that's very stop-start, but that, that's not necessarily a criticism. Um, it's very... I think the, the, the thing that swung, me, uh, swung this song for me is the drums in the second start to the chorus of Pretty Visit Visitors and the, the voice are much heavier than the first. So you'll have, you know, all the Pretty Visitors came where there are. Like the first bit sounds a bit weak. And then when you get to the second um, rendition of that chorus it sounds it does sound like like it again like it should be played in the church it sounds a bit like a hymn um or like like a, i don't know like a, like a christian choir chanting it i don't really know how to describe it but it's it's a great song and i love the fact that it just sort of tails off towards the end and then jumps back into the same i don't know i think if i could if one word to sum this song up it would be crunch it's a very crunchy song uh, and everything just sort of sounds like something's being destroyed in your ears. It sounds like a machine gun's gone off at a paint factory for, for me. <laughs> this, uh, and, I, and I just, I, I'm a, a big fan of things that sort of come across heavier when they're produced. And it's very, I think it's probably maybe the, the rawest track on the album as well in terms of production. Um, but big, huge fan. I think it's, it's like a ghost train and it, it, it's just like, yeah, completely throwing things at you and you're like, whoa. Um, and, and it's um, not, again, not in my top five, but if we had to talk about live rankings, mm. this absolutely is one that I'm so glad they have actually just retained. And I mean, it's an easy yeah. one to, to just pluck out and be like, we've got to do that because of the reaction it gets. But it just comes alive, doesn't it? I mean, just, mm. just more than when you're listening to it on vinyl in your living room. Um, but still, absolutely love it. Uh, I love his, more than the lyrics, I love his delivery of the lyrics in this song. 
it's like the way when he says at the end of the second verse, um, "Behold, as Dirk is in the hammock play." Just the way he delivers that, it's just yeah. like very odd and unique, and and he's having fun with it, and you can kind yeah. of just sense that he's in the studio just trying out these things, and that's invigorating, isn't it, to listen to? Yeah, I think it's probably the only uh, song I've ever heard that combines like uh, the set, the church sounds of the organ, but also the kind of that a bit of that hip hop and R and B influence that obviously Turner's always had. Like Jacob mentioned, the delivery there, like the delivery of those verses, is probably his closest version of I don't know Turner rap, if you want to call it yeah. that. You know, like he's essentially like spitting his lyrics, isn't he? Um, which again makes for like a very diverse and interesting track. I think when I when it first came out, the whole album, it was one that was very um, significant to me. I actually think over time, like possibly less so. I feel slightly less attachment to it as as uh, I think it's quite impulsive whereas many of the other songs kind of grew and then actually became perhaps they they shifted and if you if you're talking rankings but I think it's still a really interesting song and a, a really interesting mix of uh sort of influences and genres as well sorry sorry just sorry to buy in there Steve, Steve would you would you say it's maybe like apart from crying lightning and corners that way it's like the hit, one of the hits on the album when we listen to an album we always for me anyway you sort of associate three or four particular songs as the big ones or the singles they usually are the singles do you think maybe pretty visitors just was one of these just one of these hits really i was always quite surprised they didn't release it as a single i always thought it would be a bit of a shoo-in to be a single release back there. yeah yeah like if in terms of it being a hit if I look at their total discography now, I don't know if I would say that, but I think listening to it at the time, it would have been easy to define it as a single because I think it does hark to many of the stuff that came before, like mm-hmm. the fast pace of the lyrics, the the certain urgency, like a little bit kind of yes. Brian Storm-esque urgency that comes with it. I think at the time would have made it a, a contender to be like a hit or a single. Maybe not like in on reflection, like when you look at it all as one piece, but definitely at the time, yeah. Well, it's one of the only ones that's really survived the set list too, right? I mean, mm. the only ones you hear anymore on their tour are from Humbug or Crying Lightning, Cornerstone and Pretty Visitors just because it's so Which interestingly, but... I would say Pretty Visitors is again a bit of an outlier. It, it was one of the first mm-hmm. ones they wrote as well in this process. So you could argue that Cornerstone, an outlier, this one, it's got that kind of quick fire delivery a bit more similar to the first album and then obviously crying lightning is just an amazing track that's the lead single so i I feel like they've like you know kind of um they've evolved a lot too in how they're performed live you know like cornerstone and pretty visitors they sound completely different now than when yeah they're performing is is that because they can't get in that headspace do you think and do that recreate that humbug feel live and that's why they don't want to play those tracks yeah i think so i mean especially like with cornerstone you know not to divert too much, but like, you know, in, in this last tour, like he kind of sang it like a lounge lizard, you know, it's like a, yeah, <laughs> these songs are evolving a lot with them as a band. Um, but Pretty Visitors, I think, remains kind of similar. I mean, I saw them a couple of times on this last tour and it's still kind of that song to get everybody hyped and get everybody yeah. engaged and, and stuff like that, you know. Just, just yeah. to touch on, not to divert too much, we need to get to the last song, but Cornerstone, I, I completely agree. On the last tour, I was a bit underwhelmed by it. Whereas if you look yeah, at yeah. it today, I mean, much earlier than that, I thought that the Reading gig, um, just when this album came out, was, was fantastic. But also there's one that comes to mind when he plays it at Glastonbury in 2013. Mm, and they have, oh, the or- yeah. they have the orchestra behind it. And I think it's, it's so like one beautiful. of the most beautiful live performances that he's ever so pulled beautiful. off. Because he... 
A, he looks the part. I mean, like he always does, but he's got the sort of sequin blazer on with the, the immaculate haircut. But just backing him up is this beautiful string, you know, just mini orchestra, just backing the song up and really make, just really cementing it as a ballad. But you're right, we're pre- going on, like when you're talking about Pretty Visitors Live, it's just, it. All, if I could, it's like, it's like the song is punching me from the state <laughs> when pretty visit especially right. when the drums are hitting it sounds like it's just repeatedly hitting me whilst other people around me are, are in fact hitting me <laughs> i think just quickly on the live piece just one thing that's really interesting if you having recently watched a few performances back from that era i think one of the reasons why maybe some songs haven't carried is that when they played at that time it feels like they built the entire live show around humbug and when you see them playing like first album tracks in the humbug era different songs like they've, they've completely rewritten tracks like still take you home view from the afternoon and they've added this like dark and much much more kind of mysterious like view from the afternoon is such a noticeable one because all of those fills all of those guitar fills that like drive that song completely different during the humbug era and so i think back then like they built a live set around this sound of humbug and then i think when they've moved to AM. And then the live set becomes about how do you create that kind of AM vibe of being like an R&B influence. Then like going back in and driving tracks like Dance at the Liar actually becomes really difficult because I think that you've got to think of a, that each tour has its own uh, theme to some extent, right? And I think that that is possibly why it becomes a bit difficult to translate. We, we move on to Jeweler's Hands. And for me, the Jeweler's Hands is the last really good closer that the Arctic Monkeys actually wrote. I haven't been that impressed by the three that followed. Uh, Katie, what, what do you think about that? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. You know, the Jeweler's Hands, it's one of those songs that like, I never really get that stoked to listen to, like when I'm going through Humbug, but then uh, as it actually comes on and as it progresses, I realize how mm. much that I love it, but I think I get caught up in kind of everything before it. But yeah, I mean, I would, I would call it, I, I think it's a pretty good closer. You know, I've always kind of, and maybe we can get to this in a minute. I've always kind of treated humbug like the beasts some of the b-sides were a part of it and i almost think some of those would be better closers yeah. but um but i do love jeeva's hands it's very very beautifully done it's got a melancholic epicness to it i think that mm-hmm. just isn't there in in any of the other album, album closers and and i i think i prefer i don't know that's probably unfair to say I prefer it lyrically but i think i the lyrics in it are very interesting to me and i I've tried to kind of work out what I think it means and I've kind of just given up and on <laughs> not ever having an answer for that and just enjoying it for what it is. Um, so you so it's kind of hard to kind of like pinpoint favorite lyrics without people going, why? And you're like, I, I don't know. I just think it's just a really <laughs> unique image, like, um, like falling off the ferry and then watching her exit is like falling off the ferry in the night. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of like that as evocative. I'm not sure why. But, uh, I, I, and again, it's got that kind of classic thing of, um, the final like kind of like, breakdown and the final minute where it just kind of like keeps hitting these highs um, but in a different way to what 505 and Certain Romance and of course the others that came after does it's just it just feels like, like hairs are on end you're not you're, I just I'm not sure why it's an unsettling album closer actually I think the Jordan's hands is yeah it's it's Jake put it perfectly me- melancholic epicness I'm gonna take that one and put it in my my vocab that great, now yeah. that was fantastic that's why that's why you're a journalist um and, <laughs> uh, I, yeah um 
a decent one, and so, so not, it's one of those that doesn't make the top hit the heights for me. But it's not one of them that I don't know how you say the opposite. Low the lows. I don't think that 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 works at all. But I don't. Yeah, um, a nice closer, and um, just it's track number ten on the on the original album, isn't it? It's um, Katie's right with some of the B sides when you put in the B sides on anyway making the album really long i think it sort of loses its charm i like my albums to be quite short and just sort of pick apart that in, in, in its conciseness um steve i know that you've a very early proponent of this song when we were when we were younger you always massively thought that this was an amazing song still still think that i do but what i would say i think that the blocker for me with this track is exactly what jacob mentioned it's been up for 11 years and I, I honestly have absolutely no idea what it means. <laughs> I have no idea what it's about. Like I can't, honestly, it's like, it feels like it's like beyond like me and beyond like us as like a, like, I don't know, as like a group, as a set of listening fans, I've never come across anyone who like can be like, this is what this means. And there's something, I think the word unsettling is a great one to use because there's something again we're a band where they're so relatable and so many times they've been able to kind of bring you in this one i have no idea and i think that that sometimes always makes me feel like there's a distance between me and this track because i'll never quite get to the crux of it what i would say though i think that the execution of it is absolutely amazing and i think that like the yeah just just like to me it's a great um symbol of humbug which was like you know it's meant to represent something unsettling and different and challenging and uh and i think it achieves that really well and I, I i love listening to it but i don't i can't ever quite get to that uh connection because i have i have literally no idea what it's about we we sort of briefly mentioned b-sides there and i'm not going to go into the same depth at all i just kind of want to know if, what people's favorites are for me um the afternoon's hat and joining the dots are absolutely amazing b-sides i think this whole era is Obviously, and it's an amazing album, but very prolific, a very high quality B-sides. In fact, I love Catapult as well. You know, one of my other most top played Monkey songs is is Catapult. I don't yeah. know what it is about it necessarily. It's it's just so raw. I love like his enunciation in it. It's these, you know, it's again this kind of really interesting in-depth storytelling. It almost sounds like maybe he's talking about himself, you know, with like people following him around and stuff like that. And uh there's always been something about it that's really hit me. So like when I actually have my playlist of Humbug, I put Catapult at the end of it. So it like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm so used to kind of hearing that as a closer that it makes a closer to me. Something mm -hmm. I like to think about that I've talked to some other fans about is like what you would, like if you had to like remove a track and put another yeah. one in what you would do. And I think I would probably remove Dangerous Animals. And oh then, no, Jacob's and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and and put in catapult but the, my other two favorites are i love joining the dots god yeah. what a great song joining the yeah, dots and and uh the afternoon's hat yeah. i think are like i think they're really perfect and i think they work best as b-sides you know like mm. they they don't seem like they they're connected to the album but they don't have that same like i don't think they would flow as well in it but god those are just two wonderful tracks yeah I think you, you really you really establish the quality of a band when you look at their b-sides oh god yeah either it, it's either two, one or two things. I mentioned this on a previous podcast when we we're doing the uh, definitely maybe album run through. Your B side, you e you've either got really good B sides, and you re so it makes you an arrogant band that go 
look at these, these are our B-sides, this is how good we, we actually can be, or it's just a massive misjudgment and you don't uh, include them on the album, you make them B-sides and they become to grow more legendary than the originals. And I think this is maybe a mixture of both. I think Catapult, Join the Dots could have possibly been on the album, um, but I, I don't think there's a lot of misjudgment with any Arctic Monkeys albums. Obviously. No. They're, very, they're very clued up on what needs to go on an album. Other than the bad thing. Yeah. Shouldn't be any <laughs> I want it. The bad, the bad I, I want it all. The, the bad thing. Yeah, is I want it all. The most fantastic titled um, song ever because it's just it's, it's a bad thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I, catapult. I love. I, I mean, Sketchhead. I quite like. It's got quite of a. It's quite a spikefulness to it as well. But I, I'd say catapult takes it for me on the B sides. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, catapult. Uh, there's two here that I've pinpointed. Catapult is one of them, but the other one, and I would probably say it's one I listen to the most out of all the slot is Frightline Dining Room. Oh really? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that that song just is fucking weird and and, yeah. and it's just, it, the, the lyric i think it's like why Catap- catapult is like um a bit of a, a time capsule of maybe um a situation that would be sung about in or written about in the first two albums um kind of delivered with with an advanced musicality that you kind of see in humbug whereas frontline dining room is just it's kind of like humbug and beyond it's just mm-hmm. it's just very bizarre and it, it feels like an experiment um, but some of those metaphors, and I'm not. I'm sometimes I'm like, some songs can have too many metaphors, and Frightline Dining Room is kind of bursting at the seams with them. Um, but they're all just very weird. That it just kind of becomes this unique hodgepodge of a B-side that I don't think they've ever quite done before and have done since. So for yeah. that alone, Frightline Dining Room, it just it just hooks me in every time. Um, where where do you think the band sit on this album, Jacob? What what do you think that when they think back now and look back, where does that sit for them? I reckon they view it as their experimental era for sure, but also more more than that. Actually, I think they view it as their um, we need to establish ourselves now as a band who don't just want to do the same things all the time. We want to do kind of what we're feeling at the moment, uh, inspired by the people who we're hanging out with in locations where we want to go to. Um, and I think it was probably a statement for them. Like, I think it was mentioned, uh, you know, early on in this podcast about it being a necessary stepping stone to get to uh, the next few albums. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in, in a trajectory. Um, and I, but I think they will look back at it and go, yeah, we needed that. And, you know, in terms of whether they love it and stuff, the set lists would suggest Otherwise, maybe, maybe they don't view it as an experiment that was pulled off as, as well as uh, we all do. Um, but I think they probably look back and they're like, yeah, you know what? We did what we fucking wanted. And we had mm. to, at that time, we had to make that point to the listeners, to the fans. You know, I think a lot of the time that Humbug really laid the ground for like Tranquility Base. You know, I see a lot mm. of similarities to those two as far as like that kind of, you know, those thematic storytelling and everything, all of the songs kind of like, existing in like kind of a concept but also existing very separately so i i i think that there's a lot of influence from humbug into their their newer stuff i think 
it's interesting you touch on the set list because obviously when you've only got a couple, an album or maybe even a couple of albums, what you can play is what is on those albums, right? Um, but when, when you're six or seven albums in, as, as monkeys are, um, you've got a great choice. And I think that a lot of fans are too quick to jump to, to, why, to what a set list may indicate what a band thinks of that album. And I think that... It, it's, it's a really simple conundrum people don't seem to get is that some songs just come across fantastically live and some don't. It's not to say that the album was poor at all or they had a poor opinion of it. I think Turner's probably quite proud of that album. I think he probably looks back at it in one of his, at his songwriting peak. And it's very hard to replicate the sound of the, like Steve was saying earlier, but you just look at them in, in, when they're playing first album tracks in the Humbug era, they sound so different. When they're playing Humbug tracks in the Now era, they that cornerstone just it doesn't have possess the same urgency either. Um, so I think that it's, it's very hard to, to find that balance. I, I think Turner will be happy with this one, but I saw an interview, interview earlier. Um, Matt Helders was saying that when they play songs from the first and even the second album, they just sound sort of, it's a bit like gimmicky almost. He was trying yeah, to. Yeah, I saw that too. He was like, it sounds like we're doing karaoke of our own yeah. songs. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that, that sort of hurt me a bit, but I don't think they get the same feeling with Humbug, not at all. I saw a review today that was from Pitchfork that said that at the time, you know, I think they gave, I don't know what they gave it out of 10. Maybe there was a lot of seven out of 10 reviews at this sort of time. They said it wasn't better than its predecessors. Why do you think, Steve, that this album is better appreciated by it, by the big fans, by the super fans, as it were? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's because, um, I think if you're a, big fan of theirs generally so much of the affection towards the album comes from um what does this album mean for the uh overall career of the arctic monkeys and i, I think that about myself like when i think about why i love it i do love it because it's a collection of 10 songs that i think are amazing like there's no escape in that but honestly like and you'll hear it i think from so much of the discussion we've had that we really love it like uh, to a huge extent because of what it meant in terms of like how it, it stood for a different direction and it stood for challenging the norms and challenging what they should be. And also the fact that it then led the way to be able to release things like AM and Tranquility Base. So I think that what is interesting now, I think you're seeing as of many, I think we were talking earlier, you see many re retrospective reviews which are way more positive than they were at the time. And I think it's because now, like the way in which you look at the album is as much about the 10 tracks that are on it as it is, what did it mean for them at that time? And what does it mean for their overall progression? And I think that that is why, if you like bigger fans and in inverted commas will absolutely gravitate towards it because they see it as being that moment where they really solidified themselves. So I think for me, it's like, it's partly the tracks that are in it, but it's it's more so like, what did this kind of, um, what did this mean for them? Yeah, I think it's also, you know, when I think about kind of the fans who love Humbug so much, and I see that a lot online, that Humbug is like really deeply respected by the fans. I also think it's just, it's, it's really an appreciation of like Alex Turner, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's kind of his most, or like his first really, like kind of what we're saying, like really vulnerable, like exploration of his own mind and kind of his more poetic side. Like he was always very cheeky and clever on those first couple albums, but this takes him to a much kind of like deeper, darker area. And I think people who love him as a songwriter just connect a lot with, uh, you know, with, with Humbug. Jacob, do you think they'll ever write a better album than Humbug? 
I think yeah. they almost did with Tranquility Base, if I'm honest. Wow. Um, okay. I think Katie hit the nail on the head before, and I think like that is definitely the the um, almost sequel to Humbug, if if you want to put it in in those terms. I think um, it's hard because it's all about circumstance as well, isn't it? When you listen to these things, and I think uh, when you're younger, you just are more impressionable. But um, mm. I'd say yes. I think if anyone is capable of of upping their game, it is Alex Turner.